0: So Money episode seven eighty nine, Angela Duckworth, author of Grit. You're listening to So Money with award winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a thirty minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Would you consider yourself gritty? Welcome to So Money everyone. I'm your host Farnish Chirabi. Grit is being able to pursue long-term goals even if that pursuit takes years. Grit is when you view your life like a marathon, not a sprint when you don't consider a failure an endpoint and today's podcast guest is the world's foremost expert on grit and she is here to tell us how we can get more of it and why it is so important Today, we're welcoming Angela Duckworth to the show. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, which is now in paperback. She is a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where she earned her PhD, and she is the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit that helps use psychological science to help kids thrive. Angela and I discuss how grit can actually be learned, her financial perspective, perspectives formed as the daughter of immigrant Chinese parents, Eastern versus Western parenting values. And of course, we have to talk about crazy rich Asians. Here is Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth, welcome to So Money. I'm a huge fan. Congrats on the paperback of Grit now in stores. You You must feel like you've come a long way since the first day the book published.
1: You know what I feel like I've come a long way from? From the first day, my husband said, you should write a book on grit. I think the uh, journey was the hardest while writing it and much less hard to sign a book after you've written it. So he was the one who planted the seed. My husband came home one day and said, you know, you should really write a book. And I said, that is a terrible idea. <laughs> and um, I also thought it was an impossible idea. I, I don't know about you, but I just, I walk by these books in the airport and I think, gosh, who can write a whole one? They're so long. And I certainly didn't think I could. Um, and, and it was very hard. And I cried a lot writing this book. It was um, maybe the hardest thing I had ever done to that point. But um, yeah, I'm proud of it. And my husband read it many times and gave me feedback. So um, I'm glad it's doing reasonably well. You know what it takes to write a book? Grit.
0: So <laughs> It's very meta that uh you used your own uh power of grit to complete the book. And people can't get enough of this topic, I think. And you can tell me if this is part or some of the story. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of us maybe weren't the A student in school growing up. We um, don't consider ourselves high achievers, but we have this spirit of can-do-it-ness that I think our culture sometimes – uh, you know, skips over, or we're not necessarily highlighted. I mean, there's no like award for like can do itness or like grit growing up in school. It's always like, you got the A or the A plus or the 100%. So tell us a little bit about why you think it's become such a cultural phenomenon, grit, your obsession of late. Um, And I do think it's a bit of a Western thing because outside of, you know, I think Western culture, there are other things that may be deemed more worthy of, like, you know, what leads to success.
1: Well, there is actually at least one school that I know of that has an award and it's called the non-quitter of the week. I love it. Isn't that great? And the student gets their picture taken and then they get to hold up their award and then they write um, about what they did and they uh, didn't quit. And they don't have to have won, actually. They don't have to have succeeded or come in number one, but just that they didn't quit. And I love that. Um, I I do think that there's some special American sounding, you know, the the word grit for us, it it probably brings up that Western true grit. Gritty. Um, You know, John Wayne. And actually, if you see the uh, movie, either the old one or the new one, it's about um, a a sheriff, you know, who you think maybe he's the one who has grit. But actually, there's a 14 year old girl named Maddie. And the whole Western is about how her parents uh, were murdered and she's going to avenge their deaths. And she's the gritty one. I'll tell you, I don't think it has anything to do with John Wayne's grit. Mm. It's really about this little girl, but is it really American? I mean, I can't tell you how many people I meet from, you know, different countries from Asia, from Europe, from Africa that, that tell me that in their country, they have a word, um, that translates to grit and that it's part of their cultural tradition. Hmm. I think also when we
0: think of maybe because I feel like the American dream and the pursuit of that is such a gritty pursuit that you can come here as an immigrant too and if you work hard and you um you you, you stay the course and really the, the effort does pay off for so many immigrants when they come here that that's why they continue to come here it's the land of opportunity. But I did watch Crazy Rich Asians recently.
1: Ooh, I watched
0: it twice. <laughs> yeah, loved it. And I guess I I'm taking a page out of that, uh, or a scene out of that movie, where, or a page out of the book, where the crazy rich Asian mother, um, who was was not um, interested in her future daughter-in-law's quote-unquote passion for her career, she was like, "That's sweet," yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that is interesting because, um, you know, I am Chinese by ethnic heritage. And so I, I had to watch the movie twice. And in fact, I probably will go see it again. And (laughs) there is that mother-in-law character who comes from, um, you know, this Asian tradition that you have to sacrifice for your family. And also that it's selfish to follow your individual interests and your individual passion. Uh, for example, if it's just good for the family that you become a doctor, you become a doctor, it doesn't matter that you happen to wanna to be an artist or something else. Um, and I definitely felt like during that scene that there was something very spot on about that observation. Um, but I will tell you that I also have a, like practically a line of diplomats from Asian countries who are waiting in my office to talk to me about um, really reinvigorating the idea of passion in their cultures. You know, if you have a culture where kids are brought up to work hard and to study, but they're not creative and they're not following interests that keep them up at night and, you know, wake them up in the morning, really eager to, like, learn something new, make connections to their everyday experience. then I don't think you're going to actually have a very uh, vibrant economy. And I think that is in part why a lot of Asian countries are thinking it's not just perseverance they need. They also need passion. Right, because that's
0: what actually keeps you... Uh, devoted to whatever it is you're working on. You bring up childhood and you talk about in your book and in your research that grit is something that can be taught at a young age. So tell us a little bit about, we have a lot of parents who come and listen to the show. I'm a mom of two. You're a parent. What's the best way to instill grittiness in a
1: kid? My kids are 15 and 16. How old are yours? Very young. They're four and one and a half oh, okay, so you're a little bit um, behind the teenage years yet, have, have yet to happen. So I will say that when kids are really young, you know, preschool, et cetera, um, you might think, well, you know, what is there to do now on the grit side? Because grit is something that seems, you know, very adult, right, pursuing something for years and years that you're, you know, committed to. But kids, even at the earliest ages, for example, preschool and even younger, are observing their parents. There was a very, very um, exciting study done recently where essentially babies are like watching, you know, grownups try to do a puzzle that's very hard, like take keys off a ring and it's just really, really hard and they're struggling. When very, very young children watch this struggle and then the adult finally gets it, they actually internalize that lesson. And then when you give the child a different game, they work harder compared to kids who just watch grown ups do things and everything comes easily. And I think the lesson for parents is that for young kids, as well, frankly, as older kids, what you're modeling is not invincibility. What you're modeling is not perfection. What you're modeling is struggle, you know, the messiness, you know, I, I cried in front of my two girls when I was writing this book and I didn't hide those tears. I didn't want them to think that I was always strong. I wanted them to know that I doubted myself, but I wanted them to see me wake up the next morning, make myself a cup of coffee, get a hug from my husband, sit down at the computer and work again. And I think that's the kind of role modeling that starts early, early in life and extends all the way through.
0: Yeah. Show them the process, show them the payoff, of the mm-hmm. of the hard work. I think that's we also. I, I feel like I I've come across similar advice when it comes to our finances. You know, a lot of parents want to shield the realities of their finances from their children. If you're if you have debt or maybe the the budget one month is really tight. Um, I know my parents again. I think as immigrants, they kind of played both sides of the coin. I feel like they sometimes would say we can't afford that, and here's why. Or sometimes they would try to portray a lifestyle that really didn't add up to what the numbers showed because they wanted me to feel secure or like, you know, I don't know, happy. Can you blame them? Um, (laughs) But, but I've also heard that if you are, if you're you're in a relationship and you have kids and you're arguing about money, you know, don't, I mean, as long as it's contained, like have your kids witness the back and forth, but most importantly, have them see the resolution, you know, like we had a, There was something we disputed about, but then we came up with a plan and now we're working it through.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's, um, you know, always a judgment call. You know, I don't think kids should know everything, right. obviously. But but I do think, you know, I'm um, sharing at least for grit, you know, your vulnerability. Um, and then also, you know, the resolution of that, which is that, you know, you do get up again. Also, I am very open with my kids about how much I love my work. You know, I asked them once and I, I guess maybe also because I'm a mom and, you know, when I was growing up, my mom, she's very she was raised very traditionally and her words to me, literally, when I graduated from college were, now you're ready to be a wife. Um, so I did actually have some guilt when I was working and my kids were younger and I felt like, oh my gosh, maybe I should be that mom who's like, you know, home and 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 more available. So when my kids were, you know, in elementary school and middle school, I, I and they were old enough to ask, I said to them, you know are are you um are you kind of disappointed that you ended up getting a really really gritty mom because you know I'm not <laughs> like you know like just around and like asking you about what you're working on because I'm working on my stuff and they said um that at some points when they were growing up that they did wish that I was you know baking chocolate chip cookies for them when they were home but but they really in a way now that they are Becoming their own people are so glad that they had a, a role model of a woman who loves her work and um, and is devoted to it. This doesn't mean that every woman I think has to do you know exactly what I did, but it was very freeing to me to realize that you know in, in many ways our kids are relying on us, but not least of which to just show them a path in life that you know they themselves um, you know could in some ways model themselves after.
0: That's a really important, um, I think reassurance for women who again, you know, feel, we feel guilty all the time. Like there's, <laughs> there's not a deficit of guilt as a woman. And I do love hearing studies and also anecdotes from moms who later in life, their children do grow up and say, you know what? Maybe when I was six, I wish you were home for a day or two or went on field trips with us. But, you know, I'm so, I I think what you do, which is that you share how much you love your job, that's not for nothing. I mean, that's also part of the the um, the modeling and why they ultimately make that connection that mom working is a healthy thing, is a good thing, is an aspirational thing. Um, you touched on your childhood a little bit and like your mom and I feel like we have some similarities there with my Persian mom. You know, it, we got a lot of ironic advice growing up. Like I got the advice like, you know, get your education, shoot for the stars, get the promotion. But... You know, be a breadwinner. I don't know about that, Farnoosh. You know, or yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah like you should still marry That's rich. advice. Um, so shifting over to money a little bit, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your upbringing as it pertained to money, um, and how maybe you had a first experience learning about it or a memory that really still. Uh, sticks out.
1: Well, you know, getting back to having, you know, traditional parents, my parents were born and raised in China. And then of course they did immigrate um, to the Philadelphia area and then eventually had three kids, including me, the last one. And they did bring with them a kind of traditional uh, Chinese view of, you know, division of responsibility. So my dad paid all the bills. My dad, you know, made the money and my dad thought about the money. And then my mom cooked meals and, you know, made sure that the grocery bills weren't too high, but it was very, very, very traditional. Um, it's, uh, it's just an interesting thing then to watch how I am handling things. My husband and I are much more 50-50, like he's the one who cleans up the kitchen. Um, and um, I won't say that I'm doing the investing because I don't have a lot of, you know, interest or expertise there, but we're really just 50-50 when it comes to just like the general division of household responsibilities. And then I've got these two girls and I, I, I think, of myself as pretty, I don't know, progressive. And I feel like I've come a long way since my mom's generation. But I think they look at me and they sometimes hear things that I say and they'll say, you know, because they have yet another, you know, advance on me. And so they will say things that, you know, they feel like, oh, I'm being, you know, I'm thinking stereotypically about gender roles or, you know, um, sometimes I'll say to my girls like, oh, I should really just be a boy about this and, you know, stand up for myself. And I thought that was maybe helpful. It was kind of offensive to them. They're like, what do you mean be a boy? Girls are boys. You know, girls can just do I, anything that, that boys can do. So I, I think history is changing, but I can even see between my mother's generation, myself and my girls, how these things are changing quite rapidly.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, but the, the the thing that you point out about sort of like these gender Beliefs um, or gender expectations or gender beliefs. Some, sometimes those are hard to shift. They're like so ingrained in us. Like, even when you're like, you know, I want to act like a boy or like, you know, put on a, you know, there are a lot of sayings that we've adopted, but really, you know. <laughs>
1: It's hard. I think maybe this is why it's such a good thing that that we have you know generations, right? So so it's a good thing that you know our kids are growing up, and in a way, it's like rebooting the computer. You know, like they did not inherit all of our baggage, um, and and they kind of start anew, and they they have such a fresh perspective, I think, on things like gender, and of course other things as well. Um, Uh, So so overall, I would say that, you know, it's it's been helpful to me to even have kids because they kind of pull you into the future. Have you had any
0: uh, reflections, or or like, has anything come up in your work that correlates your research on grit and and people's financial lives? So it's there's clearly like a correlation between having grit and your success in life at large, but most but very specifically work and um, career. But what about
1: things like your money, yeah, like your money? Well, I'll tell you that grit is part of a family of um, of, of personality traits that is broadly called the conscientiousness family. And that includes grit, but also things like dependability, um, the tendency to follow rules, conscientiousness, orderliness, um, attention to detail. I mean, it's, it's the family of, of things that you're like, Oh, I hope my accountant has all those things, right? Like, you know, careful um, rule abiding. And I would say that in that family, you know, the most uh, predictive of these traits for your financial success and well being really, right? Financial security is self control, being able to delay gratification and make choices that are good for you in the long run, like saving for retirement, um, even when it makes uh a, a short-term sacrifice necessary like not buying that pair of shoes and instead you know using that discretionary income to put into savings so it's not exactly grit it's a cousin you know in this family um, but i also study that and i will say that um, one of the big insights from that science you know the science of self-control is that um, there are learnable strategies that anybody i mean say somebody comes to you and says oh i'm a wreck when it comes to my finances and my money um, they can learn strategies that will help them to delay gratification and put away money for later and um, you know save more today. There's that marshmallow
0: effect that they did with kids all those years ago. I think it was Stanford or and then they found that so basically these kids um, were tested, like who was willing to wait to eat the marshmallow. And then 20 years later, they found those kids and they found that those who waited who had self-control. Um, measured better in a lot of different ways from their finances to their, you know, progress in their schooling and career and all of
1: that. That's exactly right. The marshmallow test was given to kids. They were at a little nursery school called the Bing Nursery School on the campus of Stanford. So they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a <laughs> They a had good genes. Sample. Yeah, they had a, you know, those are some unusual kids, but they were followed their whole lives. I think they're now in middle age. And, you know, they, they end up, the kids who waited longer for two marshmallows instead of gobbling up one right away, because that was the choice. You're four years old in this study, and you're given a choice between two marshmallows, like later or one marshmallow right away. By the way, all the kids say they're going to wait. They say, oh, "I'll have to." <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. And then the question is, can they really wait? And the longer they wait, the better off they they do. By the way, there's some very recent um, science on much bigger samples, not just Stanford uh, preschoolers, and you know the effects are still there, but they're smaller than the original studies. Nevertheless, I do think that um, this ability to wait for things that are good for you in the long run, so much of managing your own money is about that um, it's it's almost like a metaphor right like two marshmallows later versus one now is not only a scientific test it's also a very accessible metaphor for what we all need to do on a daily basis Um, and in that study um, when you for example give kids a little bit of a Um, a boost in, in these strategies that I mentioned, I'll just say one, because I think it applies at any age, you know, making a plan, it sounds so simple, but when little kids are waiting for the marshmallow, you know, trying to wait for two instead of having one right away, if you help them with like a little plan about what they're going to do, you know, just for a second, they just think like, how am I going to act when this actually happens? Um, it can help them to, uh, to be more self-controlled and for financial things, you know, rather than, and just sort of, you know, living life, you know, moment by moment, you know, having a plan for what you hope to do next week, you know, do you hope to, you know, bypass the coffee shop every day? Is that way? Write it down, make a little plan. It takes 10 seconds. That actually is a very, very um, uh, powerful strategy for enacting self-control in your own life.
0: Yeah. And by the way, like not eating a marshmallow, also good for your waistline. Um, and sometimes when you <laughs> delay gratification, um, that's a good thing. Like you realize, I don't actually want the cookie, you know? Like you have to sometimes give yourself distance to be you able know, to make rational decisions.
1: This idea of distance um, is really, really at the core of so many strategies for self control. It's actually there's a term in science called psychological distance. And for example, in those marshmallow studies, you know, one way that you can create distance is to um, you know, what what they would say to these little kids waiting is like you can pretend that the marshmallow is just a picture, that it's not real. So they would actually literally say to the kids like, you know what, you can put your fingers around like pretend it's a framed picture, and they would actually draw their fingers in the air. And those kids actually were able to wait longer. That's just a way of putting distance distance, mental distance, psychological distance, and whatever trick you can use. I mean, some people would say, um, you know, I want to, you know, go to the coffee shop and buy a, you know, pumpkin spice latte for $6. But I know that, you know, my mother wouldn't do it if she were me or, you know, you can use that kind of distance, like kind of pretend you're a responsible person um, or, you know, (laughs) pretend that this is a decision that you're making for tomorrow, not for right here in the moment. Any way to put distance between you and an emotional decision is um, a way to help you make a more farsighted choice. I love that. I
0: didn't think we were going to talk so much about money from your book, Grit, but this has been really insightful. Our sponsor for the show is Chase Slate, and I'm a brand ambassador. And I've been asking guests, and I'm going to ask you about a recent purchase that maybe you shared somewhere online or offline. The reason is is that Chase Slate did this really comprehensive study into our spending and behavior, and it's called the Credit Outlook Survey. And one of the takeaways was that a majority of young people, millennials, maybe it's not a surprise, recently bought something and shared it on Instagram. Mm. So we've become this culture of like sharing purchases for whatever reason. It's a very popular thing to do. I don't do so much of that for myself on Instagram, but I do. I am curious about in your life recently, what's been something that you've bought that you were proud of or excited about that you shared? What was it?
1: Well yeah I think I'm definitely not I mean I'm too old to be a millennial unfortunately so so uh you know I am not in the generation that grew up like sharing everything on social media um in terms of purchases that um I sh- I probably you know the thing I spend the most money on is food and I I love to share food so you know I bought Chocolates recently and shared them. Um, So you know, to me, um, uh, the purchases that lead to experiences are the ones that are the most meaningful, right? As opposed to just like objects, right? Like, but things that lead to, you know, sharing a box of chocolates with a bunch of people and then you know enjoying them together. That. That ends up being for me kind of the best way to spend money.
0: Yeah, it's an experience at the end of the day. And that does actually lift happiness. Yes,
1: um, as we know from scientific research. Yes, it's proven.
0: Before. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as if we needed more reasons to buy chocolate. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned the importance of having a financial plan. Another personal question, if I may, what's Angela Duckworth's financial plan, especially now with the success of the book and your notoriety? And I mean, how has your life changed? Uh, and slash how is it going to change because you want it to.
1: I have no change in my lifestyle pre and post the book. I, you know, we live in a row house in Philadelphia and right now we have no plans to change our house. Um, I don't own a car. My husband has a car. I walk everywhere in the city, but I'm not going to go out and buy a fancy car. Um, uh, I, you know, mostly am um, thinking about ways that uh, because I have a nonprofit called Character Lab and um, we work on all the stuff that I talk about with you, but we work on Really for kids, and you know, can we can we give scientific uh, insight to parents in the form of actionable advice? And can we do that for free, especially so that we can reach you know all parents, including parents from you know lower income communities? So for me, honestly, I am literally thinking every morning when I wake up, you know, how do I raise more money for this nonprofit? Um, and and so a lot of my financial planning energy goes into this organization as opposed to us as an individual household. I love it, and you can follow at the Character
0: Lab. Exactly. Awesome. We are
1: on social media and we have a website called characterlab.org and everything is philanthropically supported. So literally everything on our website, all the videos, we have Wynton Marsalis narrating a video on practice. We have activities where kids can develop their curiosity. They're all based on scientific research and they're all hundred percent free. I love it. By
0: the way, I got married in Philadelphia. It is truly the city Yay. of love. It is.
1: That's they're not wonderful. calling it the city of brotherly love anymore, are they? I don't know they what the branding that. campaign is I for Philadelphia. Know. They are doing XOXO on the billboards, so I think they're they're trying to do the love part. Maybe they're going to drop brotherly. Yeah, it's everyone's love. It's great, Angela Duckworth.
0: Thank you so much. It was a real privilege to connect with you finally as a fan, and um, thank you for the conversation. Congrats on the paperback, and good luck with the Character Lab. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. To learn more about Angela, you can go to her website, AngelaDuckworth.com. Also, CharacterLab.org is her nonprofit. The book is called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela is on Twitter at AngelaDuckW. And if you haven't checked out our TED Talk, definitely do. It's, it's worth it. If you missed any of this, no worries. Just head over to SoMoneyPodcast.com where you can download the transcript and grab the audio. You can also click on Ask News and leave me your questions for our Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy October 1st. I hope your day is so money.